0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. The story I'm telling you this week reads more like a movie straight out of Hollywood, destined for the box office than anything else I think I've told you before. It's the story of a couple, married at 19 and together for almost half a century. They found love, they found unimaginable financial success, And they also found happiness with their simple, quiet lives in a little town just a few miles outside of Oslo, the capital of Norway. Then, one day, one Halloween day at that, all of that came crashing down. And the movie of the Hagen's lives took a turn, a dark turn. A turn that does still read like something straight out of Hollywood. Except this isn't the feel-good, family-friendly movie that this all started out as. As it stands now, this is a story of deception, of disappearances, and possibly of murder. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Given that our story today reads like a movie plot, I should probably introduce you to our main characters. Gang, meet Anne Elizabeth and Tom Hagen. The couple met through Tom's work, and they were married in 1979 before either of them had even hit 20 years old. Tom was just 19 when the two wed. Together, they had three children and enjoyed their quiet life in Hamar a suburbanesque village just 12 miles outside of Norway's capital of Oslo in the Lorneskog municipality. For 40 years, they lived in the same rather nondescript house in a cul-de-sac, and they lived perfectly normal lives out in Norwegian suburbia. They enjoyed this suburbia, a perfect spot where they could dote on their grandchildren and enjoy life outside of Oslo's bustling city center. Anne Elizabeth was the more social of the two, known for her warm smile and friendly, outgoing nature. She was said to, quote, draw people in, and she balanced out Tom's rather reserved and quiet nature in their, quote, unassuming, down-to-earth lives. Life was simple. Life was slow-paced. Life was sweet. Now, there's a reason I preface with all of this, because what with the very ordinary lives the Hagens lived, you would absolutely never guess that Tom Hagen was the 172nd richest person in the entire country. Let me put that kind of ranking into perspective for you. In July of 2018, a Norwegian business journal called Dagens Næringsliv released an article featuring Tom. This was interesting in and of itself because Tom was famously shy, especially when it came to matters of the press and public. He was not one to do publicity. But on occasion, the press came calling, and in July 2018, that's exactly how Tom found himself, featured in an article detailing how, in the previous year, he had made 174 million kroner and earned himself the title of 172nd richest man in Norway. Translated into an American understanding, the 172nd richest person in the U.S. would earn about $4.3 billion today, according to Forbes. That would place someone about just above entrepreneur Mark Cuban, but below Les Wexner, he, the founder of L Brands, which includes Victoria's Secret, Abercrombie & Fitch, Bath & Body Works, and Express, just to name a few. Tom had come into his money through business endeavors, let's say, beginning in 1992 when he co-founded Lcraft AS, an electricity and utility company that serves the entirety of Scandinavia, according to the New York Times. These days, his LinkedIn might read more like a property development and investor. He has a great many dealings with real estate holdings, and he also maintains a large stake in one of the most popular ski resorts in the country. CNN referred to him once as a, quote, property and energy mogul. His net worth, though not confirmed, is rumored to be about 200 million U.S. dollars. That all is just such a juxtaposing facet when compared to the rest of the Hagen's lives. They really did lead such relatively ordinary lives in their modest two-level home, roofed in stucco, painted navy on the top, and with a white textured paint on the lower half of the home. It was surrounded with a large wooden fence structured around their driveway and a golden number four figure that demarcated it as their own, as the only decoration. And yet, for all the world, this seemingly lovely, low-key couple was sitting on what truly can only be described as a fortune. It's at this point in our Hollywood storyline that you might be wondering, well, where's all the action? This story, if anything, is a slow burn of a tale, but we can trace its beginnings, at least according to police, back to that fateful article out of Dagen's Neringsliv, the Norwegian financial journal, because it was that article, that rare feature into the life and wealth of Tom Hagen. That's where investigators believe our story first began. October 30th, 2018 started out like any other day. However, the Hagans had exciting plans for their evening. That Tuesday night, the couple traveled the 12 miles into Oslo via Tom's unassuming Citroen car to meet with some friends in the capital for a night out on the town. They shared dinner together and then made their way over to Det Norsk Theatre where the group of friends had tickets to see the recently opened production of The Book of Mormon. At 10.30 p.m., the friends spilled out into the street with the other theater goers and parted ways. Back in Tom's Citrone, the Hagens drove the 12 miles home, no doubt pleased with their fun and relaxing evening in the city. That fun and relaxing evening spent at the theater would also be the last confirmed sighting of Anne Elizabeth. The morning of Wednesday, October 31st, 2018, Halloween, began like this. At 9 a.m., Tom claims that he left the Hagen home and headed into work. The morning had been relatively normal, nothing to report, with maybe a few outbursts of energy and excitement coming from the couple's new puppy. Because of the new pup, Anne Elizabeth had planned to stay home to watch over and keep the little one company and continue introducing him to his new life in their home. It's been reported that the drive from the Hagen home into Tom's office is one that lasts only about 8 or 10 minutes. And it was at 9.15 a.m. that Tom was seen on a surveillance camera walking through the gates into the complex that housed his energy and investment company. It's also here, though, that the first blip on the radar of our timeline appears. At 9.14 a.m., Anne Elizabeth received a phone call. Initially, it was reported that it was Tom calling her, possibly in an attempt to let her know he arrived at work or to tell her something he'd forgotten. A conversation of that ilk is what we imagine. However, that claim has since been retracted by the Norwegian media, and instead, police will only say that Anne Elizabeth spoke with, quote, a family member at 9.14 that morning. My questions about this phone call are abundant. If it was Tom on the phone, what did he want? If it wasn't Tom, then who did Aunt Elizabeth speak with, and why is it such a secret about who she did speak with? We don't even know the context of the conversation that she had. We simply only know Aunt Elizabeth took a phone call and... That's it. About half an hour later, at 9.48 a.m., Anne Elizabeth received another phone call. But this time, this call to her cell phone, it went unanswered. Tommy Scanson, the man on the other end of the line, thought this was unusual. He was a neighbor of the Hagens, and he also did work as an electrician. He'd been trying to get a hold of Aunt Elizabeth to discuss some light fixtures in their kitchen that she wanted updated, and Skansen had been aiming to head to the Hagen home at some point that day, if Aunt Elizabeth was agreeable to it. Aunt Elizabeth was known to essentially answer any call that she received, so it stood out to Skansen that she both didn't answer his call, and she didn't return it. Throughout the rest of the morning, other people in Anne Elizabeth's life reached out to her, but all of their attempts were to no avail. Anne Elizabeth was simply unreachable, and her last phone call was allegedly the 9.14 a.m. one that she had with someone who has remained unidentified. At 1.30 p.m. that afternoon, Tom arrived home from the office. He was earlier than was usual for his schedule, Another slightly unusual blip on the day's radar. What was also unusual was Anne Elizabeth was nowhere to be found. The house was empty. Tom knew his wife hadn't made any plans for the day, so he didn't know what to make of it when Anne Elizabeth didn't appear as he entered their home. He didn't get much further than their front foyer, though, when he noticed something. Something odd. Barely over the threshold of their front door lay a pile of Anne Elizabeth's belongings, including her cell phone. He could see that she had a missed call on the screen, the 948 call from their neighbor Tommy Scanson, that had gone unanswered. As Tom walked further into the home, he noticed that nothing was out and out wrong, but things were off. There didn't seem to be any sign of a struggle at the front door. On the floor, he found something that looked like a cable tie or a zip tie. There was a strange shoe print inlaid on the floor. The couple's new puppy was found locked inside one of their bathrooms. But it was when he noticed bloodstains on the floor of the bathroom that Tom Hagen no doubt began to realize he was wrong. Because there was something wrong. And that sinking suspicion must have been confirmed when he walked into their bedroom and found a note. A ransom note. The letter, placed haphazardly onto the Hagen's bed, was written in what has been described as, quote, broken Norwegian and, quote, poorly written but highly detailed in its contents. There are only a few details of the note that have been shared with the public. One, that Anne Elizabeth... Had been kidnapped. Two, that the Hagen family was being closely monitored by those who had kidnapped her. Three, the kidnappers warned Tom, saying that if they discovered that he had reached out to police, Anne Elizabeth would be killed and a video of her execution would be posted online. And finally, they were demanding 9 million euros in the form of a nearly untraceable cryptocurrency called Monero. But none of that really mattered. Because the biggest point at that time, Anne Elizabeth, she was gone. Despite the warning from the kidnappers, and I mean honestly, who amongst us wouldn't do this? Tom reached out to the police about a half hour after realizing that his wife had apparently been kidnapped. Granted, Credit where credit's due, because his contact was discreetly made. But also, what took place during that half hour before Tom connected with the local police at 2.07 p.m.? Perhaps he took that time to figure out how to avoid detection. Because after Tom contacted the police, detectives met with him secretly at a local gas station of all places. After hearing what all he discovered at their home police advised Tom not to make any sort of transaction with the alleged kidnappers, not until they received some form of proof of life, a sign that Anne Elizabeth was, at the very least, still alive. The ransom for Anne Elizabeth was one that immediately caught investigators' eye. By definition, cryptocurrency is, quote, a digital asset designed to work as a medium of exchange wherein individual coin ownership records are stored in a ledger, existing in a form of computerized database using strong cryptography to secure transaction records, to control the creation of additional coins, and to verify the transfer of coin ownership. The very name cryptocurrency relays its intentions to be, well, cryptic. To even be considered as a form of real cryptocurrency, the system has to meet these six standards or conditions. 1. The system does not require a central authority. Its state is maintained through distributed consensus. 2. The system keeps an overview of cryptocurrency units and their ownership. 3. The system defines whether new cryptocurrency units can be created If new cryptocurrency units can be created, the system defines the circumstances of their origin and how to determine the ownership of these new units. 4. Ownership of cryptocurrency units can be proved exclusively cryptographically. 5. The system allows transactions to be performed in which ownership of the cryptographic units is changed. A transaction statement can only be issued by an entity proving the current ownership of these units. Six, if two different instructions for changing the ownership of the same cryptographic units are simultaneously entered, the system performs, at most, one of them. Cryptocurrency was first conceived of in 1983 by an American computer scientist named David Chom. In 1995, he created DigiCash, the first iteration of cryptocurrency. Chom's intention with DigiCash was to create transactions that would be the first of its kind. That is to say, anonymous. He developed, quote, a number of cryptographic protocols. The main one being that anyone hoping to use DigiCash had to utilize a specific software that would, quote, withdraw notes from a bank and designate specific encrypted keys, all before any transaction could take place or money could switch hands. All of these protocols, though, gave CHOM the anonymity that has become synonymous with cryptocurrency. It, quote, allowed the digital currency to be untraceable by the issuing bank, the government, or any third party. Karsten Sherman, an associate professor at the IT University of Copenhagen, puts it a little more succinctly. Quote, cryptocurrencies are not organized by a state or another entity. That's why it is difficult to regulate them. DigiCash went the way of the bankrupt dodo just three years later in 1998, but cryptocurrency was born and it was just beginning. Be money. Bitgold, Litecoin, Peercoin, and of course, Bitcoin. All of these are forms of cryptocurrency, money that is designed, at its heart, to be anonymous, evasive, untraceable. When something wants to remain secret that needs to take those lengths to be anonymous, evasive, and untraceable, there's usually a reason for it and it's usually one steeped in nefariousness. There had only ever been one cryptocurrency-fueled kidnapping before this, just three years before in 2015. Ryan Piercy was a Canadian national living in Costa Rica when he was abducted and held for ransom for five weeks in January 2015 in what he later described as, quote, subhuman conditions where he was chained by the neck to a tree throughout his imprisonment. His alleged kidnappers operated and communicated from within the deep web, quote, sending pages of messages, threats, and demands to several members of Piercy's family from an email account. And they ultimately demanded a ransom of $500,000 for Piercy's safe return. After a series of partial payments, Ryan Piercy was released. Though his case remains shrouded in mystery, to this day. It was especially odd that the kidnappers specifically sought the ransom in the form of Monero, an admittedly attractive cryptocurrency to criminals because of its particular strength to remain undetectable, but one that was still considered only a small player in the vast market of cryptocurrencies. In fact, the amount being demanded would have accounted for a considerable amount of Monero's entire existence, to the point that the idea of remaining untraceable would have been difficult as the kidnappers tried to siphon off the money to buyers. Further stymieing the Norwegian police with the fact that, well, violent crime like this wasn't something that happened all that often in Norway, and especially nothing so sensational as the kidnapping of a business mogul's wife for unheard of amounts of cryptocurrency. It was as though a true crime narrative from a movie had leapt from the screen into the streets of this little Norwegian village. Though the police advised Tom not to make any sort of moves to gather the ransom money, they did take seriously the threats against Anne Elizabeth's life. It was with those threats in mind that the police made a slightly unusual decision. The kidnapping would not be publicized. Now, we'll often learn about kidnappings and ransoms and whatnot after the fact, but this decision was unique in how quietly and secretly the police treated the case truly from the start. After meeting with Tom, the police arranged to gain access to the Hagen home in such a way to avoid detection by the kidnappers. From there, the small group of detectives quietly worked what was being labeled as a crime scene, trying to collect any sort of evidence. KRIPOS, the National Criminal Investigation Service, and OKOKRIM, National Authority for Investigation and Prosecution of Economic and Environmental Crime in Norway, were both contacted as well, and they were brought into the situation. Everything, it seems, was done with the intent of being as unnoticeable as possible, as undetectable as the very money the kidnappers were demanding. Despite the strange scene that greeted Tom when he arrived back at his house, the only thing that truly stood out to investigators was the blood inside the house. Unusual because it was such a nominal amount the police couldn't even tell if it had been caused that day during the kidnapping. And given that Aunt Elizabeth, you know, lived in the house, the police couldn't confirm if the blood was suspect or simply standard for an occupant of the home. It was then that the police took another slightly unusual step. They ordered Tom to continue on with his life, telling him to act as if nothing had happened, as if his wife hadn't been allegedly kidnapped from their home, as if nothing in the world was out of sorts. They believed that they had to keep their investigations top secret as possible in a bid to protect Anne Elizabeth. And so the police extended that secrecy clause onto Tom as well. His life had seemingly turned into a horror movie, but Tom played the role of normalcy as well as he could. He was already a bit shy, known to be withdrawn, and happy to rely on Aunt Elizabeth as the more social of the two. But now, now Tom was positively reclusive. Sure, he carried on going into work and presenting himself out into the world, but his behavior didn't pass closer inspection by family and friends. People began to whisper Where was Aunt Elizabeth? Hadn't it been some time since anyone had seen her or even heard from her? Tom told neighbors his wife was simply away, on some sort of vague trip or vacation. Friends were told much the same. Even family members weren't clued into what was going on. Allegedly, Anne Elizabeth and Tom's three adult children weren't informed about their mother's kidnapping until the end of December 2018 almost a month into her disappearance. When they learned the truth behind their father's strange behavior and their mother's even stranger absence, family members were also sworn to secrecy by the police, still investigating as quietly and unnoticeably as they could. The threats to Anne Elizabeth's life ever top of mind. The secrecy and silence continued through December, into the holidays, and into the new year of 2019. That is, until January 9th, 2019. Anne Elizabeth Hagen was reported as having been kidnapped during the afternoon of October 31st, 2018. The public, though, wasn't made aware of any of this until January 9th, 2019. That's 70 days after the fact. 10 weeks since Anne Elizabeth was last heard from, let alone seen by anyone other than her husband. The police finally broke their own code of silence about Anne Elizabeth's case on January 9th because they had to. They needed the public's help. The Norwegian media had been made aware of the disappearance some weeks beforehand, but they had acquiesced to the police's request to keep a lid on the case until they were ready. And like that, was such a pleasant surprise to learn because you know no American media outlet would have respected a request like that. In any regard, the police arranged two news conferences on Wednesday, January 9th and Thursday, January 10th. The facts, as they said at the time of the announcement, were laid out to the public, also including some rather surprising revelations, like the fact the Hagan family and police had been in contact with the alleged kidnappers through what was only described as, quote, back channel negotiations. I say alleged kidnappers there because even at that point in time, the police had no idea if the people they were communicating with were the kidnappers or if they even had Anne Elizabeth. As Tommy Broski, head of the police unit at the time, put it directly, quote, there are no known signs of life. The -the behind-the-scenes drama of this truly sensational case captured the country's attention unlike any case before, and the police hoped to capitalize on that public interest. On the second day of news conferences, January 10th, investigators released two video clips of three figures. The video is from surveillance cameras around the compound where Tom's business companies are located. Time stamped at 7:36 a.m. on the morning of October 31st, a man in dark pants, a dark long-sleeved shirt, and a dark hat resembling a beanie can be seen walking quickly down the street just outside of the complex. Suddenly, he stops just as he almost walks out of the frame. He turns about face rather quickly and immediately starts striding back the way he had just come. At 8am, just 24 minutes after the first person is seen, another figure is picked up on the surveillance cameras. This one is wearing dark pants and an olive colored jacket with the hood pulled up and completely concealing their face. This person is also walking down the same road the first man was, but just as this second person is spotted, another figure enters the frame. This time, a cyclist wearing a bright neon green windbreaker. They whiz by the walker and in other frames and viewpoints of the cameras, the two are spotted for a handful of seconds. Police appeal to the public asking for their help in identifying the three people in the tapes as they believe that any of them may have been working as a lookout of sorts at the time. There were other people the police needed help in identifying as well, once the public had been clued into the events of the previous 10 weeks. One of the Hagen's neighbors came forward with a story about an odd occurrence that they had witnessed on the morning of Anne Elizabeth's disappearance. Sometime that morning, he had spotted a gray or silver SUV type of car in the neighborhood. The SUV, though, wasn't what caught his eye. It was the path that the car cut for itself, creating, quote, a strange shortcut over a patch of grass towards Aunt Elizabeth's house. Another neighbor reached out to police about seeing two men fishing in the lake behind the Hagen's house, and they claimed that the two men had been, quote, looking in the direction of the house that same morning. With the public now in the know, the police conducted land searches throughout the wooded area behind the Hagen's house, as well as into the brush and overgrown area of the lake, but they found nothing. As it was January in Norway, the police resolved to wait until the spring to search the lake itself. The two fishermen spotted at the waterfront have never come forward, and similarly, the two walkers spotted on Tom's surveillance cameras at his business have also never been identified. The biker, though, was identified, and they were cleared. On January 16th, the Hagan family received a message from the alleged kidnappers through a Bitcoin communication system where the family would, quote, communicate through small sales of Bitcoins. Different payments corresponded with different requests and answers. However, none of these messages or any of the previously sent messages that were mentioned by police in the press conferences, none of them have ever been shared publicly, And following the press conferences, the subsequent messages and their contents have also yet to be released. It's unclear how exactly this mode of communication was established with the alleged kidnappers, and it's especially unclear how reliable the messages being sent were. According to Michael Skoberg, speaking to the publication The Norwegian-American, quote, The perpetrator has chosen a digital communication platform that facilitates communication in a very small degree. There has been no oral contact. Like Skulberg said, these methods are reportedly not the easiest of systems to master communicating via cryptocurrency, and the integrity of the network the messages are sent on is often called into question since users have to rely on codes, certain glitches in blockchain communications, and generally a good faith system that is banked in anything but good faith. It's especially hard to have good faith when the messages being transmitted weren't providing any sign of life, like the Norwegian police had hoped they would. 11 days later, on January 27th, the Hagen family again received another message from the alleged kidnappers. Still, they don't receive any proof of life. After the message on the 27th, the kidnappers went silent, and the police, a team numbering 200 at this point, continued their own digging. The motives for cases such as this can be, if you'll allow my opinion, boiled down to these three elements. Sex. Revenge. Revenge. And money. Given the immense wealth that Tom Hagen had accumulated, police began to investigate if someone along his professional path had been burned, crossed, or otherwise inspired to go after Tom for his money. Tom shared during an interview that, given his line of work and his wealth, it would be possible that he had created enemies. Enemies, though, that he couldn't begin to identify. Despite being involved with a fraud, a tax fraud litigation case at the time. The case in question, quote, concerned stock litigation where 12 companies had lost approximately 100 million cronin, which is about 11.7 million in US dollars. Tom held ownership interest in one of the affected companies and the case was due in court in the fall of that year. Police also considered the idea that the very thing Tom hated had led to the kidnapping. Publicity. Not only was the July 2008 feature in Doggins almost a beacon signal to those looking to target an incredibly wealthy man, but there was another tool someone criminally minded could have utilized if they were trying to extort someone and if they hadn't read that Doggins feature. In Norway, it's legally required for every citizen to allow their tax returns to be public record. That is, anyone could literally search someone in this publicized database of tax returns, do some quick configurations, and pretty easily identify wealthy citizens to target for any number of reasons, really. It's a legal stipulation that has been catching flack from the people of Norway for some time, especially those who seem to predict something like this that someone could utilize public records to target the wealthy for their own gain. Is that exactly what the perpetrators had done? Targeted one of the wealthiest men in Norway for their own financial gain? Like I said earlier, sex, revenge, and money. Winter, as it always does, turned to spring. In April 2019, six months since Anne Elizabeth had last been seen, the police were finally able to search the lake behind the Hoggins house for any sort of clue. With the help of a canine officer specifically trained in water searches, the police have never revealed what, if anything, they found in the lake. But what they didn't find, for certain at least, was a body. Because at that point, the police no longer thought Anne Elizabeth was missing. They believed that she'd been murdered. After another unsuccessful communication with the alleged kidnappers in May, the Norwegian police made a stunning announcement in the next month. The police district heading up Anne Elizabeth's case released the following statement. Quote, As the case initially appeared, our main theory was that Anne Elizabeth Hagen had been abducted by someone with a financial motive. And in June, 2019, we have come to believe that she has most likely been killed. We now believe there was no abduction and there never was any genuine negotiation. In other words, there was a clear and well-planned attempt at misleading the police. In the same breath, The police also officially renege on any further searches for the identities of the two walkers seen outside of Tom's businesses on the morning of Anne Elizabeth's disappearance. The circle, or perhaps the noose, began to grow smaller and tighter. Just a few weeks after the police's official change in theory on July 8th, Tom's lawyer, Zvian Holden, received an email. An email from the dark web. The style and format of the email suggested to Holden that the writer of the email was also the writer of the ransom note. He also claims that the email contained, quote, information that only the perpetrator would know. But the heart of the message was this. If Tom Hagen wanted to see his wife alive, he had to pay. Tom quickly put together a cryptocurrency transaction amounting to 1.3 million euros, for nothing. The alleged kidnappers once again did not send any proof of life. Shouldn't be noted odd timing of these kidnappers. Months go by without a word from them, and even after an attempt by the family to initiate contact, there is still nothing but silence. Yet, So, shortly after the police changed their official hypothesis for the case, suddenly the kidnappers are back in the DMs. Odd, that. Odder, still, were the returns coming in from pieces of so-called evidence from the Hagen household on the morning of October 31st. Returns that arrived all throughout the fall of 2019. The shoe print, the cable tie, and even the paper that the ransom note was written on They've all provided key clues, key insights into just what might have happened on that Halloween morning. German investigators assisting in the case alerted the Norwegian team that the shoe print found in the house belonged to a shoe manufactured by the brand Sprox and is a size European 45. The Sprox brand is sold at a chain of stores called Sparkjop, and one is located in the vicinity of the Hagen house. The cable tie was identified as a Chinese product sold in a store called Bill Tama. Bill Tama, another common Norwegian chain, is also located near the Hagen House. And the paper that the ransom note was written on sold at a store called Klaus Olsen, yet another establishment located in the same municipality that the Hagen House is located in. As more and more clues began to fall into line, more and more theories began to fall out of line, out of the police's roster of possible scenarios of what did happen to Anne Elizabeth. They've ruled out suicide pretty early on, as well as the idea that Anne Elizabeth might've simply up and left. They've ruled out accidents, they've ruled out illness, ruled out a number of theories, and they were left with simply one one that had been dressed up and paraded out to investigators purposely designed to distract and deflect what started as a bizarre kidnapping had shifted into a tale of murder sex revenge and money if these are the traditional motives for murder I'll raise you one true crime trope better. It's a tale as old as time. In April 2020, the police retold that tale by making their first arrest in the case. Tom Hagen. Because, of course, we have to rely on that classic storyline. That the husband might have done it. On April 28th, 2020, Tom Hagen became a character in the often recounted story of the husband committing the crime when he was arrested on his way to work at 8:30 in the morning, barricaded onto a side street by a stream of police cars. He was charged with murder or complicity in the murder of his wife, Anne Elizabeth Hagen. In a press release, the Norwegian investigators revealed how their belief about the events of October 31st had changed over time. Quote, the suspicion against Tom Hagen has been continuously assessed throughout the case and the investigation. After 18 months of investigation, police now believe there is reasonable reason to suspect Hagen of murder or complicity in the murder of Anne Elizabeth. The arrest is a result of the overall picture of evidence as the case now appears. As other hypotheses have gradually been weakened during the investigation, the basis of suspicion against Tom Hagen has, in the police's opinion, been gradually strengthened. We believe that no abduction has taken place, and that there has therefore never been a real negotiating counterpart. In other words, the police believe that the case is characterized by a clear, planned deception. On the day of his arrest, Tom was remanded into custody for four weeks, but just days later, on May 8th, he was ordered to be released by the Supreme Court in a ruling of two out of three judges who agreed that there was no reasonable ground for Tom to be held. That same day, the police tried to arrest him again, and they failed in this attempt. Following their return, their failure to return Tom to custody, the investigators identified and arrested another suspect a cryptocurrency expert who has since remained identified to this day. Two days after the arrest, the unnamed expert was released, but is still facing a, quote, assistance in kidnapping charge in connection with Anne Elizabeth's disappearance and theorized murder. At the time of the arrest, the police refused to share their hypothesis as to why Tom would have murdered his wife of almost 50 years And it's something that they've kept mum about throughout the last seven months. Tom's lawyer, Zivian Holding, argues that the couple wasn't experiencing any marital trouble prior to Anne Elizabeth's disappearance. By all accounts, they've always been characterized as being a perfect match. She had nothing to gain if the two divorced either, as laid out in a revised marriage contract from 1993 that was discovered in Norwegian public records. In that year, Tom and Anne Elizabeth made a change to their initial marriage contract, which I assume is basically the Norwegian equivalent of a prenup. The addendum stated that, quote, In the event of a divorce, Anne Elizabeth would only get the furniture, a car, and the right to keep the land she inherited from her parents. Nothing more, nothing less. And certainly nothing from the company that Tom had co-founded the year before in 1992, the company that would eventually rake in millions of kroner for him. So then the question is, why? Why would Tom Hagen orchestrate such an elaborate plot with such outlandish elements? It's a question the Norwegian police claim they have an answer to. Except, we're not privy to it yet. So, let's ask all of the other hashtag questions that come to mind with this ripped-from-the-Hollywood-script case. Question number one. Who was the last person to see Anne Elizabeth and to see her alive? Did someone break into the Hagen house that morning despite there being no evidence of a struggle? Or was it someone that Anne Elizabeth might have let in? Where did the blood at the scene of the Hagen House come from? How did Anne Elizabeth come to be bleeding? What did the ransom note say in totality? Why hasn't it ever been fully released? Why did the ransom demand such a specific amount of money and through such a specific cryptocurrency? Why did the ransom note even demand cryptocurrency at all? Why is there still so much weirdness surrounding the 9:14 a.m. call that Aunt Elizabeth had? Who did Aunt Elizabeth speak with? If it was Tom, why was he calling? If it wasn't Tom, why won't police publicize who it was? We know that Aunt Elizabeth was on the phone at 9:14 a.m. and by 9:48 a.m., she no longer had access to her phone. What happened in that 34-minute span? Who were the two walkers seen outside Tom's offices that morning? Why did the police release them from further speculation? Who was the person driving the gray SUV that made the strange turn onto the grass near the Hagen house that a neighbor reported seeing? Who were the two fishermen seen the morning of Anne Elizabeth's disappearance? And why have none of these people been identified or come forward? What did Tom do during the 37 minutes before he met with police on the day of Ann Elizabeth's disappearance after realizing that she was gone? Why did he return home earlier than usual on that day? What crucial evidence was lost during the 70 days that the police kept Ann Elizabeth's case out of the public eye and out of the media? What did the messages the Hagen family traded with the alleged kidnappers, what did they even ever say? Why did the kidnappers wait for such an inexplicable amount of time between all of their communications? When winter finally turned to spring and the police were able to search the lake near the Hagen's house, what did they find there, if anything? Why haven't they released it yet if they did find something? Who was it that sent the email to Tom's lawyer from the dark web? What did the full contents of the email say? And how is Sven Holden so sure that it could only have come from a perpetrator? Why did the kidnappers wait five months to make contact again? At a time coincidental to the fact that police had just changed their hypothesis about what happened to Anne Elizabeth. For all of his mogul status, Tom Hagen has been described as, quote, a technophobe. The New York Times reported that, according to his lawyer, quote, Tom never goes near a computer, is unable to write an email, and keeps the access code of his old Nokia phone scratched on the screen. If we're to believe this, then how could Tom have orchestrated such a tech-savvy and technology-dependent scheme like the police seem to suggest? Was Anne Elizabeth's disappearance orchestrated by someone known to her and or known to the family? Was the disappearance orchestrated by someone within the Hagen inner circle? Was Anne Elizabeth ever held for ransom or was she murdered immediately on October 31st? Did Tom Hagen orchestrate his wife's disappearance? Did someone Tom Hagen know or work with or anger or upset orchestrate his wife's disappearance. Is Anne Elizabeth dead, or is she still alive, being held somewhere? If Anne Elizabeth is dead, then where the hell is her body? Why would someone target Anne Elizabeth? And to that point, why specifically would someone target Tom Hagen? Who targeted Anne Elizabeth? Where is Anne Elizabeth. What happened to Anne Elizabeth Hagen? Sex, revenge, and money. The husband did it. A sensational kidnapping that gripped a nation's attention, supported by the dark web, shadowy figures, and countless contradicting theories and questions and what-ifs. It is, as they say, a real whodunit when it comes to Anne Elizabeth Hagen. But the thing about this story, this case, we're nowhere near our ending credits. There is a woman still missing, possibly murdered. Her husband is being charged with her disappearance and murder, and there is a world of questions left unanswered most important one of those questions being, where is Anne Elizabeth? A kind-hearted woman, a social butterfly known for her personal warmth, a doting grandmother, and a friend to most all she crossed paths with. That woman, Anne Elizabeth, is still missing. And I'm not so sure I can accept that oft-repeated adage of, the husband did it. Because, did he? Norwegian police haven't released any updates since Tom Hagen's arrest and the subsequent arrest of the unnamed cryptocurrency expert since May 8th. We're not yet sure when he's due back in court, what the next steps are, or even where police stand in their still ongoing investigation. And we're still not sure what exactly happened to Anne Elizabeth Hagen. Unlike a movie script, this isn't a story with a tidy little conclusion. This is a story that is messy. It's confusing. And it's still playing out before us. I know it's a story I'm going to keep my eye on. Because I, for one, want to see how the story ends. And to make sure justice is served for Anne Elizabeth Hagen. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts so other people can give the show a listen. I want to give a quick shout out to the newest member of the DAW Patreon crew, Alden Sullivan, the sluttiest of the shower sluts. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level, and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work I do here for just $1 a month, get yourself shouted out in an episode, have access to exclusive content on the Patreon, and forever have my gratitude. Head on over to patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast to check it all out. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at dark as hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at dark as hell Pod, again, all one word. There's also still time for you to take part in the Black Friday Cyber Monday sale going on at the merch store. If you head over to darkashellpodcast.com slash store dash merch, you can get 10% off your entire order by entering code Thankful for da at checkout. That's thankful for is in the number four DA, dah, d a h. You can get cozied up in a dah sweatshirt or joggers. Pour yourself a cup of tea in a dah mug while listening to an episode, and otherwise deck your halls and yourself with all of the dah swag. That's darkasellpodcast.com/store-merch, and the code again is thankful for dah. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkishelppodcast at gmail.com, or you can head on over to darkashellpodcast.com. And for my wine and weird friends, thank you. Shout out to Nina Peace for recognizing that famous last words. I did, in fact, need my mic for the live stream event that was supposed to be this past weekend. Uh, your episode will be coming today, so you get a two for today. And again, thank you for your patience. I cannot tell you how much I wanted to walk into the abyss, an abyss probably similar to that of what the Titanic created. And if you're interested in knowing what I'm talking about, head over to darkesthellpodcast.com or patreon.com darkesthellpodcast so you can join in on the wine and weirds fun. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.